podcast for film nerds by film nerds and yes we will be stealing taglines from other podcasts until we finish our degrees we also aren't original either and honestly finishing our degrees in this climate unheard of i'm your host mon and i'm your permanent guest host nick uh how, how are we doing today how, how are things honestly i haven't been doing really well at all this past week like i'm gonna be real with y'all for a minute and you kind of just open up about mental health since we're in a pandemic and we're all in lockdown. Like I, like many other people, have been struggling a bit with lockdown. I thought I would be okay, but this second lockdown like really hit me hard and it's been incredibly rough for me. Like I've been trying to find a routine, but it hasn't really helped. No less, I'm like incredibly anxious all the time as well. But it's also kind of good to know that I'm not alone in this and nobody should be either. Mm. So please take time to talk to someone or reach out when you're feeling anxious or even feeling a little down it like absolutely helps so much like you know yesterday something bad happened to me and I called lifeline and they really helped me out like out of a dark place and there's nothing wrong about asking for help and reaching out to others or be it friends family even professional help you know, like, it's that cringy thing where everyone says that we're all in this together. And you know what? We are. And if you're feeling blue and you live in Australia, the number for Lifeline is 13 11 14. Your feelings matter and they are always valid, no matter the reason. Yeah, and it's important to know, uh, a couple of weeks ago was Are You OK Day, a day which I don't really like because I feel like that's where the conversation ends. So it's really important to keep having those conversations, continue them, have them year round and check up on people, check up on the people you love because you know what, that's, you love them. Now today's films are the first two Avengers films directed by Joss Whedon, which I won't bother recapping because they're, they're the Avengers. Like the first one is currently the eighth highest grossing film of all time. Mm-hmm. And even the very underwhelming Age of Ultron currently sits at number 11 on that list. Now, Mon, you wanted to do some superhero films, so why don't you start us off? Yeah, of course. Because, you know, I've been feeling so weird lately. I find that watching superhero films or just any film that doesn't, like, it doesn't have to have me utilize the three only brain cells I have is kind of like the best way to cope for me. So it's largely due to the fact that I spent a large chunk of my adolescent years fantasizing and adoring the Marvel Cinematic Universe. It was incredibly important to me because it was a sense of escapism that I still kind of fall back onto even till this day. Like, obviously I'm older now and I see things critically and definitely more pessimistically as well. Yet, the Marvel Cinematic Universe as a whole was so amazing to young 14-year-old Mon. It was also like the second big fandom I had become a fan of and it started with the first two Avengers films. The second one? What, which one was the first one? Uh, my first one was Twilight. Like, <laughs> as much as it is horrible, it really is special to me and I absolutely love it. Like, if you didn't know, Twilight was our first episode of this podcast um, and we put that out almost a month ago. Also arguably the worst, but we're not going to argue yeah, it. It's, it. It's quite bad. My one was actually The Hobbit. That was the first big fandom I got into. Mm-hmm. But um, overall, it's weird how similar that is to my experience, that adolescent escapism. 
Mm. As a criticism towards the MCU, film director David Cronenberg said mm. that the superhero genre is adolescent in its core. But honestly, firstly, I think that's not strictly accurate. But secondly, even if it was right, and not just some like old man yelling at cloud vibe, it wouldn't really be a bad thing. Yeah, like I, I really vibed for the fact that these films came out between 2012 and 2015 and honestly they were the best times of my life like nothing like watching a superhero movie with your mates in a crowded theater in Danong with popcorn and something that bit your neck from the dirty seats in Danong Plaza Oh no! Yeah, and would you look at that? It was a bug. Actually, here's the thing. Here's a here's a really uh, funny story about Danong Plaza. Is that sometimes they don't even they don't even check the tickets, so you can just walk right in. Sometimes like there's no like there's no che- like ticket mm. checking person. So I've walked in so many times, and I've saw like I saw a lot of free movies. Um, like oh my God. Yeah, and it was so weird. Obviously, they don't do that now because they check all these tickets now. But, like, back then, they didn't. And I remember it was just, like, $10 a ticket. And, like, my dad and I went to go see a movie. I think it was Captain America Civil War. And we saw it at Danong Cinemas. And I was watching it. And then my dad was like, something just beat my neck. And I was like, it's a bug. I know. It happens last time to me. And I was like, Danong Plaza Cinemas, please clean your seats. Like, he was like, and it found out that it was head lice. Head lice. Mm. Yeah, I got into that cinema a couple times for free as well, but not because I'm a brave rebel like you. I just knew the people working there. And that included when I went to go see Guardians of the Galaxy 2 for the second time. And, (laughs) yeah, that experience and a lot of our nostalgia for these properties could be linked to the fact that the development of the MCU coincided with our development into becoming people. Because, like, you're not a person if you're, like, under the age of 12. Yeah, you aren't a person. You're like a parasite. Like, if you are... If you are like twelve and under, you are you're basically just a parasite. Okay, don't, don't be 12, mean. You're, you're don't be mean to the twelveies. They'll bite your ankles, mon. You're the same height as them. That, mm, yeah, yeah, th- th- yeah. My sister is twelve and she's taller than me. <laughs> I am going to cry. Anyways, not to mention that something weird happened in two thousand eleven to thirteen. Both in the world of technology and in our personal lives as well. Our schools went from those weird electronic whiteboards. Do you remember those? Yeah. Like there's like really, yeah. And you had to like tap to them pers- to calibrate them. I know. And you had to do all the corners. Oh my goodness. And you, and then you also went to personal iPads. And we went from periods? Haha. <laughs> that could never be me. That sounds horrible to, oh no, this is horrible. Oh my God. Oh my God. Oh my God. Um, there, there's, uh, there's blood coming out of me, mom. Oh, God, I forgot how uncomfortable that is. <laughs> the best notification I got this year was my period app saying, hey, it's been a while since you used me. And I went, hey, it's been a while since I needed you. You were so lucky. Oh, what I would do to not have periods. Anyways, and yeah, and, you know, like with the rise in technology, things like the cinematic universe weren't considered as risky. Like, any one film on its own in this entangled web of sequels, prequels, and midquels, with all of its lore, became instantly explainable with a few taps on your cinema device. Sorry, Lynch, I meant my phone. <laughs> Ooh, that's right, Lynch. Now, the knowledge gap between a non-issue 
So while films like The Avengers did a good job in recapping and reintroducing previously established characters, after Phase One, it was no longer like it no no longer felt the need to. Mm. And this is just one part of the perfect storm that would be the first Avengers film. I want to take you back to biblical times, 2012. A man named Joss Whedon is making a movie for the MCU, and I'm not going to do the whole song. (laughs) Now, (laughs) Joss Whedon is the son of a television writer who was the son of a television writer. The man has writing in his blood, just as I have a love of potatoes in all forms in mine. Including vodka? Especially vodka. In a way, he was practically the perfect person to direct the first Avengers film. He is the fanboy. He's the creator and father of many cult classics and many well-loved properties, as well as a film student. Hey, that's the name of our, that's the name of our podcast. Yeah. I know. Otherwise, I absolutely adored Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Like, it was one of my favourite shows. And I don't know about you, but I loved watching YouTube parodies with vampires back then. Because back then it was like, oh, you must hate Twilight. Twilight is so bad. And I was a closet Twilight. And, like, my favourite video was about Buffy killing Edward Cullen. And it was edited to look like they were actually fighting. It was fantastic. I loved it so much. However... Whedon made his name by being creator and writer of Buffy the Vampire Slayer in the TV, in the, in the TV show, which took the blonde girl dying in the cold open of a horror movie trope, killed it, and took a massive shit on its grave. Like, creating a series that celebrates feminine power, starring Sarah Michelle Gellar as the titular Buffy, who does the awesome vampire slaying. Fun fact, she's actually Daphne in the best Scooby-Doo movie, and she's married exactly. to Freddy, and in, in real life, and yes. Velma is in Age of Ultron as Hawkeye's Mrs. I love you, Linda. I love her. I love Linda. She's so now, good. She's so good in everything. I know. I know. Now, so Jossie makes a name for himself, then after Buffy ends it, he makes a slightly less successful spin-off Angel. I have watched a couple of episodes of the show. It's not that great. It's quite boring. And after that, he makes the infamous series Firefly, the now cult classic series that was intended to run for seven years that got cancelled before the first season finished airing due to poor ratings after Fox promoted it as a comedy as opposed to a sci-fi western, aired the episodes aired the episodes in the wrong order and put it on a Friday night, which meant death for a television show back in the day. That's, that's like, ridiculous, though. Like... It's Jossie Boy. He just gave you two very marketable shows, and you do this to him? Yeah, but that didn't stop him, eh? Like, it didn't stop him. Like, he wrote the fir- like he, he wrote the film Serenity to sort of tie it up, which was meant to happen in Firefly. Then, during the Writers Guild strike, he made the banging Dr. Horrible sing-along blog starring Neil Patrick Harris and then did a few other things like Cabin in the Woods, which was completed in 2009 but not released in two th- until 2012 because of Development Hell before signing on to direct The Avengers. So, when you take a step back and look at it, this man made at least four certified hits depending on how you count them embedding himself into fan culture back when fan culture was still something you could actually bully people for as opposed to the natural state of our popular culture speak for yourself i am still 100 <laughs> percent ready to bully some fucking nerds oh it is the God, basis of half my friendships especially <laughs> khan especially khan i mean we bully khan a lot for being a nerd yeah because he's a fucking nerd 
And um, don't forget to mention that Buffy, Angel, and Firefly were all about camaraderie and teamwork. So like, seriously, who better to do the Avengers? He makes the fanboys cream their pants, he creates films where the characters question the status quo just like S.H.I.E.L.D. is questioning the Avengers, he's proven himself to be adept at handling the themes and types of characters that the Avengers would require, and he knows how to maintain his authorial signature whilst playing ball with the studio. Exactly! Like, one of his key signatures, which is doesn't really sound that great now that you say it out loud, is the killing off of beloved characters. But compare the... But doesn't yeah, it doesn't great. sound great, but compare the pair in the first Avengers, he had actually not decided to kill off Coulson. That was a studio decision that was non-negotiable. However, in Age of Ultron, there were two cuts of the film, one where Petro dies and the other one where he lives. Now, both were filmed in case the studio wanted to tell Whedon that he couldn't kill, off Quick, he couldn't kill Quicksilver off at the last minute yet the man knows how to fulfill the needs of a studio but he is also a man i i don't like the way you said that please please tell me yes we are and speaking of hating men this is the segment in the podcast where mon talks about men masculine oh my god Something that has never been done before. Something that has never been spoken oh, about in the history god. of film podcasts. Oh my god, what is it, Nick? Holy it's shit. feminism. Whoa! She, holy shit, she's so original. Uh, she is so mm-hmm. original. It's yeah. never been done before, distinguished listeners. It's never been done, especially not on this podcast. We've never talked about feminism or masculinity on this podcast, ever. Like, mm-hmm. when mm-hmm. we consider never. films to talk about, I always think, are we going to end up making this about gender despite the fact that this podcast is not about feminism in film and the answer is always just somehow yes <laughs> but yes. i guess like <laughs> the fact that we always discuss masculinity in this podcast is a testament to how male dominated cinema has always been not only on screen but behind the camera and especially the crew of course, and we're talking about the superhero genre, a genre plagued by the rabid Marvel fanboys who will stop at nothing but to shit on Captain Marvel and like, come on guys, it's just a movie, man. It's hey. just a movie. Hashtag not all Marvel fanboys. <laughs> just kidding, it is all of them. Hey, uh, but interestingly, the superhero genre encompasses a lot of elements of action, fantasy, and sci-fi. Therefore, the MCU have established themselves at the helm of the superhero genre in the 21st century by incorporating comedy and family-friendly aspects that enables them to attract all types of audiences. This is Marvel's strongest tool, and it's certainly the most successful. Yeah, seeing as the superhero genre stems from the action, fantasy, and sci-fi genre, it's bound to implement the same genre conventions of the latter. Like, not just in structure and... But it's also in character journey and also paratextually as well. Like, let's take a look at the posters, okay? So I don't know if you've noticed this, but all the film posters are designed really similarly in comparison to other action films of the time. Oh my god, are you talking about the orange hue? Yes, I'm talking about the orange and blue hue that is literally present in every single action film at the time. Like, Avengers has it. Iron Man has it, Iron Man 2 has it, The Dark Knight has it, even Transformers. Like, if you look at all of these posters, it looks all, it, it all looks really familiar. Like, how weird is that? Like, what an unusual design choice. 
Yeah, like, I was never really one for design, you know this, but mm, Jesus Christ, did they hire a 13-year-old kid who had just learned Photoshop to design these posters? I was getting tired of this blue-orange bullshit back when I was 15 and watching The Hunger Games, and I noticed Woody Harrelson just looked really weird, and I'm like, why is he all orange on one side and blue on the other? Mm-hmm. Like, I guess color wheel theory or something, but yeah. um, it doesn't, just stop doing it. It's so repetitive. Like, I don't even know how to use Photoshop, and I bet my ass can design a better poster using Microsoft Paint. Of course you can. But, like, fair enough. Like, I'll, I do I do want to see that, by the way, so you, you have to show me. <laughs> so, back to, back to my point about the genre. It's always been for and by men. Now, comic books were the same thing. The super has always been directed towards a male spectatorship and never a female. One of the key issues of the Avengers is its lack of gender representation. Yes, we do get to see Black Widow and Mary... Uh, and, and Maria Hill, who are absolute badasses. However, because of these sex, because of their sexual difference, they stand out within a sea of men. These women are always depicted within male spaces, and hence they are presented as different from other women because they traditionally display masculine traits. Thus, they are considered on par with the heroic men they are surrounded with. It's like saying that to be considered worthy or on par with a man, you must uphold masculinity. You need to be independent and be a fighter kind of like pep is a great example of a woman who holds her own without really being a fighter you can make a point that she dons the iron maiden suit and helps out tony so she can be considered as a fighter however she's a smart businesswoman first she runs most of stark industries and she does a lot more work than stark does when it comes to his own company like pepper pot slaps yeah she can slap my ass too <laughs> if only i can feel something other than sadness oh god nick see a psychologist <laughs> you first <laughs> Anyways, okay, okay 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 like we, we get it we get it you're really horny for like literally every single hot character in the mcu which is a lot so However, many there is so many. However, Black Widow is an incredibly interesting case study of how women are depicted in the superhero genre. She isn't a love interest in the first Avengers. She isn't. And she certainly isn't the damsel in distress. Joss Whedon considers himself feminist. He says that his daughter's favorite character is Black Widow. So why the hell did he end up ruining her entire character arc in Avengers Age of Ultron? Yeah, man. Age of Ultron was just a mess from the start. Speaking of which, mm. in a lot of the... Pro- promotional material black widow is like the way that black widow is displayed it's like it's a big yikes it's a big yikes for me dude Mm-mm. you know what that is nick you know what that is what is it the male gaze which Ooh. kind oh not the fun kind <laughs> then uh, there's only one kind no <laughs> yeah but the male gaze that's right baby i'm gonna go full throttle full feminist right now Full, full feminist film thirst right now. Anyway, it's just a quick recap if you've never heard of the male gaze before. It's a term created by critic and filmmaker Laura Mulvey, who is my absolute icon. Now, she crafted it in her titular article, Visual Pleasure and Narrative Cinema, where she delineates that female characters are only objectified sexually without any agency of their own, essentially emphasizing a male spectator rather than a female one. There is problems with the male gaze, though, as it solidifies heteronormativity, doesn't account for female spectatorship, you know, stuff like that. Uh, but on the other hand, I mean, uh, hippity-hoppity women of property. Yes, yes. Um, good, educated point, Nick. Thank you for your wonderful academic 
inside. Anyways, Black Widow is definitely sexualized in the MCU. That's just a given. However, Natasha isn't actually a passive character though. She has a purpose and yes, you can make a point that her sole reason she's there is because haha, hot woman, haha, hot woman can fight too. Look, haha, she's a good badass woman. Wow. You can uh, make that point. She can murder me any day of the week. Hot lady. <sighs> nice. Go go to horny jail. Go to horny jail, Nick. Please. In horny jail, I'm in isolation. <laughs> You're, well... Go to horny jail, nonetheless. <laughs> now, Laura Mulvey initially wrote this during the same 1970s where the second wave of feminism was taking place. It doesn't account for the nuances of contemporary filmmaking. So the active slash passive conventions that more like Mulvey applies is a little bit skewed. Normally, it's mainly the women that are served as a spectacle. However, the male contemporary figure often functions both spectacle and active. This is actually really interesting and incredibly subversive. Ah, is that why I want Chris Evans to sit on my face? Nick, horny jail. Okay, horny jail, Nick. (laughs) Otherwise, this is represented by Captain America's tight suit. You see his plump ass. Wow, look at that Dorito shaped torso. (laughs) I had to go to horny jail, but you can talk about his plump ass. (laughs) Anyways, Hawkeye's acrobatics, right? And Thor's bare arms. So Black Widow isn't the only one designed to be looked at. All of the Avengers are. I mean, that's actually pretty fascinating if you think about it. Like, you were just talking about female spectatorship earlier. I think this isn't really meant to be for women or the fun kind of the male gaze. It's... It's gays (laughs) like homosexuals. Get it, guys? But it, perhaps it's meant to serve as a fantasy for men to attain. You want to be them. It's meant to reinforce the notion of hypermasculinity that has been embedded within the framework of the superhero genre since the start. Superheroes have always been the ideal men. Right. Now, speaking of masculinity, I hope our listeners aren't too sick of the same deconstruction, but we sure are. However, we must... We must talk about it, Yeah, I'm, I'm so over it. <laughs> Next week, <laughs> know, we are not talking I'm about so masculinity. Sorry. Hopefully, we don't. No, there's now, no hopefully like said... about it, Mon. <laughs> How are you going to put masculinity <laughs> in next week's film? I have no idea. Like I said, men have always been the target audience for the superhero genre, and thus it has, it has to aid in the hegemonic reinforcement of male identity. Like, masculinity is defined as possession of the qualities traditionally associated with men, which is in an incredibly loose term, by the way. It doesn't denote the intricacies of masculinity. Now, theorist John Kang states in his book, Masculinities and the Law, a multidimensional approach. He says, you must be, you may be born male, but that doesn't make you manly. Something we haven't spoken about before is how masculinity in of itself is represented differently between two sectors, one being men's rights activists and the other is academics. Now, Leo Brody in his book From Chivalry to Terrorism indicates the intersectionality of masculinity and how race, sexuality, class, ability and ethnicity all play a role in defining masculinity. A good example is Asian men. Asian men are not seen as sexier or even manly in the West. They are emasculated by the stereotypes the whites have enforced upon them, and thus the idea of masculinity, of masculine identity, is disrupted by that racial oppression. 
Yeah, and intersectionality is definitely something that you always need to consider when developing a rounded examination of things like gender. Because, like, if you're not considering factors, like you said, of race, class, ability, then you're not really talking about the real world. You're talking in some, like, made-up fairyland where there's no such thing mm. as other factors. Yeah, I know. So here's my next point, which is quite anti-mon, okay? Ooh. So as much as the Avengers or any other superhero aid to cement the idea of hegemonic masculinity or even toxic masculinity, it also serves to function as a form of positive masculine identity. Oh, positive. We're talking positive masculinity again. Okay, tell, tell me more. Okay. Yeah. So, Nick, when you watch the Avengers, what do you feel as a man? Bored and horny. Those are my two moods. You know that. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Men. I can't. Right. So, Captain America being a man at a time, he's lost and possibly afraid and unsure. Iron Man, who suffers from PTSD and alcoholism, recognizes these issues and tries to become a better person. Even though later on becomes a lovable figure who isn't perfect and has flaws, he loves his family and after Infinity War, he loses himself to depression and gains weight. Mood. Obviously, it was done as a joke and fuck you Marvel for doing that to Thor. But you get what I mean, right? Yeah, but uh, I do, but keep going for the people who, who might not know, because I definitely yeah. know. <laughs> Mm, like, obviously, Captain America and Iron Man always fighting and butting hits is very, ha-ha, man must fight, man gets angry, grrr, epic Hulk moment. However, it also is just nice to see men not always being portrayed as cold or just assholes. They're, they can be warm and friendly, have flaws, and be lovable, charismatic assholes instead. Now, I do also understand the criticisms of why these heroes might embody hegemonic masculinity. Especially physically, too. Like, they all have abs, and they all look like they're out of a sports magazine. Like, Steve Rogers needs a serum to make him big and strong and have a six-pack. However, he is a kind man who was courageous and brave, even when he was a little twink. You know? Like, the Hulk has gamma radiation, and he becomes a big... <laughs> I did call Captain America twink, and what about it? He is a twink. Have you seen him? He is a twink. Okay? This is... This is he is a twink. Anyways... Like, the Hulk has gamma radiation, and he becomes, like, big and strong. And he becomes a giant green beast. And honestly, you can spend another one-hour episode, de like, deconstructing the Hulk as a symbol for toxic masculinity, but we aren't going to do that now. And if you ever make us watch any of the Hulk films, I will take a dump on your desk. Oh, and I'm going to smell that dump. Yeah, I don't, they're, they're, <laughs> they're so, so boring. I hate them. I hate they're them all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, 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 they're so horrible. But Thor and Iron Man have to face their immaturity, and hence, at the end of their character arcs, they're more mature. However, Black Widow is interesting because, like I said earlier, she embodies female masculinity. You see, a woman who, who is seen as masculine, she's immediately pigeonholed into being a bossy, bitchy, and undesirable woman. However, Black Widow is very desirable, and she isn't a bitch. She displays both her femininity through seduction in accordance with her masculinity. Now, so Black Widow is a cool character. She's the only woman in the Avengers, and that immediately makes her a bamf. Badass motherfucker. She was never treated as a love interest in the Avengers. If you count Hawkeye and Black Widow, then okay, maybe, but I don't. In Age of Ultron, though, oh boy... Oh my god, I, I, I hate Joss for that so much. Like, fuck off. 
fuck off if you mm. think that was just because Black Widow doesn't sell many dolls that she deserves to be showcased like that in this. I I'm going to go off about that in a second. Mm mm mm. Like she was an amazing character and then just did a complete 180 on her. She becomes purely a love interest for Bruce Banner. She spends all her time oohing at him and batting her eyelashes. It's so disgusting. Like why did they even force them together? We all hated Brutasha, and I hated it even more on Rewatch. Like, it's just so unnatural. And, oh my God, this is going to be a weird detour, but Hulk, canonically, in the MCU, cannot get an erection without hulking out, <laughs> which he references. He's, he implies that. He says that right before Nat calls herself a monster for, like, not having ovaries, which is, like, yikes. But anyway, he says that, and Nat still wants to smash the Hulk. Like, bro, are women who like men okay? He cannot yeah. pop a stiffy. His little monster cannot wake up without waking up his big monster. His schlong functioning is symbolic of crazy horny brain, and the world's best assassin still wants that mediocre dick that he cannot get up. Bro, some of the baffling things just happen in the MCU, but that takes the goddamn cake. And the lullaby is so annoying. Like, the sun's not going down. I just don't like that scene. Like, the whole Beauty and the Beast thing sucks so much. Like, I hate the whole rhetoric of the woman's job has to always be fixing the man who was a beast. Like, Goo Goo Gaga, shut the hell up, Joss Whedon. <laughs> yeah, the way they displayed Natasha as worthless as a woman because she's infertile and can't bear children. Like, Joss? Joss, is this what you think women are like? Do you think women just kind of want to pop out babies like an iPhone from a Chinese sweatshop? <laughs> Women's rights literally said, I got a dip, and they left. Seriously, they made sure Black Widow in the film followed the conventional gender conventions of a woman. And I don't stand that at all. Like, you compare that to Agent Carter, a TV show based off the greatest woman of all time, Peggy mm. Carter. She's a badass on the show. Please watch it. I have. Peggy in a blonde wig is a look, and I love her. I love her too. But anyway, as well as representing those different aspects of masculinity, each of the original members of the first Avengers film also represents some different aspects of what it's like to be American, both mm. in a contemporary and a traditional sense. Mm. Nick Fury has his preoccupation with security. Thor's an Aryan wet dream who values family. Cap is obviously patriotism as well as justice. Bruce Banner is the gentle, well-intentioned humanitarian mm. that turns into a destructive monster when provoked. Natasha is mm. the resilient, independent, and a very famous spy, which is an oxymoron man. And Tony Stark is a selfish, egotistical capitalist, as well as a visionary scientist who dedicates his life to advancing technology. Now, you've left out Hawkeye the same way the movies left out his deafness. That's right. You noticed, Marvel. He's called Hawkeye because his eyes compensate for his lack of hearing. I hate you. And fuck Jeremy Renner for making music. I used to stand the shit out of Hawkeye until I heard Jeremy's music. Like, everyone knew that my favorite <laughs> Avenger was Hawkeye. Hawkeye. And then I heard that Jeremy Renner makes music, and I'm like... Friendship with Hawkeye cancelled. It's it's done. It's Hawkeye is over party. Exactly. Hashtag cancel Hawkeye. 
Now, Hawkeye was so peak in the Avengers Assemble TV show and the comics. Like, they watered him down so much in the MCU. Honestly, though, all the MCU fanboys might attack me right now, but the comics are way more darker and hella edgy compared to what you see on screen. The MCU has siphoned almost all their wackiness out of the comics and have chosen to take key elements out of these characters to make them more marketable, even more interesting, mm. thus appearing incredibly ableist. Yep. Anyway... It's not just the characters who aren't Hawkeye that are symbolic for things about America. The Tesseract itself is an allegory for nuclear power, and with the Cold War not that far behind us, it's kinda easy to see why it's the MCU's go-to MacGuffin, because it was also America's go-to dick-waving tactic for about 50 fucking years. Like, those themes are all wild. But I want to focus on the big ones, and what's more American than capitalism and 9-11? Oh my god, are we going? We're, we're going, we're going there. there. We're going there, Nick. <laughs> we're going there. We're going there. But first, to a little place that some of our listeners may have been before. There's a stadium in the Docklands oh of Melbourne. I don't know if... Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it's in Australia. It was built in 2000. It was a new footy field made to replace an ageing footy field in a more central location. It's never been called the Dockland Stadium. Instead, like, what it does is it just passes off its naming rights to whoever wants it. So for two years it was called Colonial Stadium, then it was, like, the Telstra Dome till 2009, mm. then it was called Etihad, which is what I'll probably call it until I die, because I'm a cranky old <laughs> bastard who doesn't like people changing the names of things, hashtag A Block Forever. Like, seven people are going to get that. <laughs> Anyway, it stayed uh, called Eddie Had until March 2018 when Disney bought an eight-year naming rights deal and called it what it's known as today, Marvel Stadium. Also, do you remember where you were when you heard about that bullshit? Because I remember, like, thinking that they bought the stadium outright, and I was like, yeah, I guess they could do that, but why? But, like, the actual story yeah. lines it, like, even weirder. Yeah, like, I actually I actually didn't even know they changed the name of, like, they changed the name from Adahad to Marvel Stadium. Like, essentially, I never paid it any mind until recently. I was like, hold on. Wait a minute. It says Marvel isn't like Iron Man Marvel. How did this happen? How does Melbourne literally correlate with the MCU or any Marvel slash Disney-related properties? I am still so confused. Like, I'm still so confused. I don't know what the hell is going on. Because in addition, there's actually a little Marvel retail outlet in the stadium now. And this was all framed as, like, a big, radical change that passing on the name to Marvel would signal a new era of entertainment. Mm -hmm. When really all that happened was our government actually said, hey, let's fix up that shitty part of our city. Like, that's all the and change that, that's happened. Like, that, in essence, is the Disney brand when it's trying to be woke or progressive a lot of the time. It's in the name only, unless the innovative change is to introduce another revenue stream which is known as horizontal integration. Which honestly, Disney doesn't have to do horizontal integration. They, they don't. Like consider just the sheer box office records that these films set. Mm. All four of the Avengers films are in the top 15 of all time. And no, I'm not adjusting for inflation because who gives a shit about racist Americans the four hour film? <laughs> Not to mention that adjusting for inflation isn't actually that simple because every country has different rates of inflation. Yeah, exactly. And like if, like I said, if box office was the end of it, it'd be amazing. But it's not because we're talking about 
Disney here. This is the company that dropped a cute little 4 billion with a B dollars to buy Marvel from Paramount. That's the same amount of money they spent on Lucasfilm, and a well-known fact about George Lucas is that his main takeaway from the original Star Wars endeavor was the merchandising rights. And now he's mm. filthy fucking rich. I know, like indeed, making movies on this scale is no longer film for film's sake. Film is now a gateway into video games, television rights, comic book tie-ins, action figures, toys, and pop vinyls. The gift you give someone when you know they're a nerd, but you don't know anything else about them. Like, Marvel has gone from caped crusaders to Coca-Cola, easily identifiable and sold everywhere. Capitalism is, in essence, a game of high school dodgeball. I didn't sign up for it. I didn't pick my team. I can't control the balls flying in my face all the time. And the same three people always win, and they were never on the same team as me. <laughs> now, speaking of getting destroyed... <laughs> oh, no. oh my god, surely that's I'm not the sorry. only transition we could I, think I, of. I couldn't think of anything, but 9-11... Okay, when you when you have a film where there's a massive amount of destruction and death going on in Manhattan, you're going to have people talking about it. You know, special 9-11, which is us. We're going to talk about it. I think before we get too far into this, it's important for us to remember that 9-11 was a horrifying day. To be getting on a routine flight, to simply be at work, or to be helping out your fellow human in a time of crisis because it's your duty, and be dead by the end of the day, along with thousands of other people, was a terrifying thought. Especially for the hundreds of thousands of people who live that reality every fucking day, and who have died as a result of the war on terror. Ha! You thought I was going to have empathy for the Americans? You know, they experience one national tragedy they say they'll never forget, institute a bunch of security theatre, and go bomb the crap out of the Middle East because brown people aren't people and then their entertainment exploits the iconography of both 9-11 and the war on terror for profit. Meanwhile, almost exactly 20 years later, during a global pandemic, their directors insist on keeping the theatres open while a 9-11 amount of deaths happen every two days because the director is a toddler that wants to show you what they did to time again. If they... If that doesn't say everything you need to know about the about America, then I don't know what to tell you. And yes, we know that Nolan's British, but he has American citizenship. And that means, fuck him even harder, the two-timing colonial bastard! Yeah, fuck you, Nolan. Anyway, 9-11 was in essence Pearl Harbor 2, Electric Boogaloo, in making America realise that it wasn't invincible to the terrorist attacks that it imposes on other countries around the world, except the sequel twist was that it happened to the lower 48 in, it, in the contiguous continental United States, not just that one state that used to be its own sovereign nation until America did an imperialism. And there wasn't a world war going on in the background during 9-11 either. Yeah, there wasn't. But now, that's that's to, all to say that 9-11 drastically changed America, obviously. And as such, how America saw itself in its entertainment. Steven Spielberg said that when making the 2005 film War of the Worlds, a film that evokes such disastrous imagery that 9-11 reinformed everything that he put into his film, as America now knew what it felt like to be terrorised. Indeed, and in Hagley and Harrison's article about the Avengers and the post-9-11 American myth, they argue that the resurgence 
of the superhero genre was a direct response to America's feeling of helplessness that they could do nothing but watch as thousands of people died. To once again divert the conversation to things I know, there's a brilliant musical called Come From Away that's about a town in Newfoundland where a bunch of planes were diverted immediately following 9-11, because obviously the Americans weren't going to let more people into their airspace after four goddamn plane crashes. Mm -hmm. Anyway, throughout it, the tension and anxiety is just palpable. There's a mother whose son is a firefighter in New York, and the entire time she's just trying to get into contact with him. There's no real emotional release from that for a lot of the musical, so this feeling of suspense is just hanging over the audience's head, the helplessness of the ordinary person. Mm -hmm. That's what the heroic myth provides America in times such as that. It provides an outlet, a form of catharsis, as that helplessness is removed. Yeah, and in his book, McSweeney argues that the superhero genre offers a counteraction for the fears that have developed in Americans since 9-11. So, in this case, both a catharsis and a reassurance. Yeah, you, you definitely find that throughout the genre. Back in 2013, some journalists noted that the climax of the then-recent release of Man of Steel, which was supposed to be, well, which was the first entry into the DCEU, was likened to 9-11 with its egregious amount of destruction happening within Metropolis. However, it's also noted that when 9-11 actually happened, the scenes that resulted were likened back to pre-existing action films. Thus it stands that not every action film that utilizes imagery of a destroyed city is actually pulling on that 9-11 thread, because not everything revolves around your one traumatic incident, America. Like, that being said, a lot of action films definitely do, and it's especially hard to avoid the comparison when you set your climactic and destructive battle in Manhattan. Superhero films rarely mention 9-11, instead creating in-universe allegory in invoking the imagery of 9-11 through theme and visual mise-en-scene recreation. Consider the waves of dust that Batfleck runs through in his opening scene in Batman vs Superman that reframes the weirdly bloodless and deathless climax of Man of Steel through the lens of the helpless victims on Ground Zero running to avoid the destruction of forces outside of their control. Likewise, the Battle of New York in the 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 Battle of New York in the Avengers is basically the MCU's 9/11. The ramifications of which are examined and dealt with for the following, let's call it six years to Infinity War. Mm. And it's weird because it's almost as though Hollywood just keeps going back to this imagery to pull on these strings for entertainment, to pick at the scab for shits and gigs. Mm-hmm. Walter Benjamin is cited by the Guardian as saying. The self-alienation has reached such a degree that it can experience its own destruction as an aesthetic pleasure. Mm-hmm. And a large part of that aesthetic pleasure is utilising Im- that imagery and then watering it down. Yeah, the biggest part of that watering down is that nobody is shown to die. Well, civilians aren't. Sorry, Quicksilver. It's weird that you would make a 9-11 but never show what the point of 9-11 was. They mention laughably small death tolls in Civil War. Like, you mean to tell us that all Sokovia had 177 deaths? Like, come on. But then, but the, then again, America also has a habit of doing that with civilian deaths in the Middle East. Like, did you know that if an able-bodied man dies, for example, in a drone strike, he's not counted as a civilian until proven otherwise? <laughs> wow, that's fucked. Anyway... 
Media scholars often argue that popular culture can often become an encapsulation of what it meant to live in a certain society at a certain time. Notably here, we see that American interference in foreign affairs and the need to be hailed as heroic, helpful humanitarians. They're, they want to be the kings of the world, just as Britain was before it, in the Western sphere anyway. Yeah, and in Age of Ultron, the Iron Legion essentially represents American interventionism. The Sokovians go from angrily attacking and resenting the Iron Legion to welcoming them as heroes and saviors, ignoring that the Avengers are the reason they're in the mess in the first place, reassuring the American myth that their interference in foreign affairs provides an overall positive effect. It's like the Vietnam War, you know? And that's essentially what the Hulk represents. He's introduced in the Avengers as a wholesome humanitarian in Kolkata, but he is also incredibly destructive, as we see in Age of Ultron. Over half of, and not so fun fact, over half of the US's foreign aid budget actually just goes to military assistance yeah. as opposed to like actually helping things that are actually useful. Yeah, that's really, dare that's I say. really, really sad actually. But let's also talk about how Coke. Kolkata is depicted because that is also a very American way of viewing the world. Like something that you didn't probably didn't you probably something that you realize that whenever Hollywood films depict any country in the Middle East or in South Asia, it's always in that yellow orangey hue. Mm, Let me tell you, is. when you go to those places, it does not look like that. There is no orange hue in the Middle East. There's no color filter in places that aren't American. Okay, so all you see in that scene, like all you see in the scene in the Avengers in Kolkata, is that there's slums. It's painting countries that aren't in America, even in the West, as discrepant, disconnected from the modern world, and reinforcing that the stereotype that developing nations are just set, like are just settings for white people to use as refuge while they work on their personal problems, as opposed to the culturally rich and vibrant regions of the world that they are. Yeah, like, imagine a movie scene that attempts to encapsulate the vibe of Australia, but all they show is just, like, a kid running through the streets of fucking Dandenong. <laughs> Honestly, here's the here's the real thing about Australia, how they'll depict it. They will depict it in the outback, because Australia mm. is always in the outback. It's always, it's always in, in somewhere outback. in Darwin. It's always just showing serial killers in the outback, and it's like, I swear, not all of us are serial killers in the outback. Some of us are serial killers in the suburbs. Anyways, also, like, this is something that is repeated throughout the MCU as well. In Iron Man, Afghanistan and the conflict in and around it is merely a prop to boost up Tony Stark's character growth from deathmonger to selfless hero. His atonement for his selling weapons is more important than what those weapons have been used for, just as the Avengers atoning for creating a mess in Sokovia is more important than them causing it. Yeah, and obviously in Civil War, there's that heightened sense of responsibility and culpability from the text itself of Thundy Bulky Boy Ross telling them that they need to be held accountable, to even extending to the fact that the climactic fight happens in a completely abandoned airport. Mm -hmm. So, like, the directors and the audience don't have to think about the human cost of their fight outside of the primary characters involved. And if you start thinking about property damage, all of a sudden you're a nitpicky arsehole, mm -hmm. which you kind of are. So, like, do you think that this is a development, this development is something that's spouted from films like Man of Steel and the First Avengers, just constantly mm -hmm. trying to do this 
big climactic fight in populated areas and getting criticism, often from bad faith arguers and people with like too much time on their hands, about mm-hmm. the human cost of these third act staples. Yeah, like they're always fighting in like large populated areas full of so many people. Like just think about all the amount of taxpayer money used to build all those structures. Like, oh my god. Also, Nick, can we also talk about Sokovia for a bit? Oh yeah, the made-up Eastern European country, which, by the way, is entirely a Joss Whedon MCU creation. Sokovia, like Wakanda, is not a real place, but the closest real-world analogue is, like, one of the former Serb states, or Kosovo, a former USSR exactly. state. How cool would it be, though, to have real Wakanda? So cool. Wouldn't be allowed in, but it'd be cool. I know, I know. Wouldn't be allowed to be really, really cool, right? Anyway, so Kovia is a country where Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver are from. There isn't much known about the country despite the fact that it heralds a lot of Hydra bases and is largely where Ultron decides to enact his plan of global destruction. It reminds me a lot of all of the struggling Eastern European countries like Serbia, for example. Is there a reason that you pick Serbia? Specifically? This might be a stretch, Nick. But we're film students. Like, we're always finding connections, okay? Now, we know that America has done some horrific stuff in the past. Yes, we are always alienating our American listeners. I'm not sorry about that, but it must be said. We do love you guys, though. Nevertheless, 20 years ago, Bill Clinton commanded an airstrike at Yugoslavia, now known as Serbia, during the Kosovo War. There's a lot of complexities I can't and won't get into, but the destruction of third world countries that has been in political turmoil has been in political turmoil isn't something new in cinema. It's simply just a poor reflection of reality without the real life consequences of human deaths. Yeah, and uh, even in Batman vs Superman, which came out in 2016, which was the same year as Civil War, they set mm. their third act in a sort of abandoned part of the city, implying no deaths outside of the main characters of the conflict. And it's, mm-hmm. it's weird to think about it, but this is one of the strangest consequences of 9-11. It is. It's the strangest consequences that film and, and cinema and TV in general have been taking all of these ideas from a terrorist, like a terrorist event and then encapsulating within their films. It's really interesting to see how cinema represents reality in that way mm. through kind of like these really interesting nuanced takes. So what do you think about the legacy and the impact of the first Avengers film? Well, in terms of the legacy and the impact, it's definitely like created a like it cre- it, it created the mode of Marvel. The, the mode of how Marvel depicts their superhero films. It's depicted the humor, the comedy, the fight sequences it just made it incredibly mcu and that is why it was so popular but it was it was also the fact that they had films from different like they made films of the different characters before there's iron man there was captain america there was hulk and then you finally got to see all of these characters in their individual films in one kind of crossover event and i think that's something that is so important is that the avengers took all of these characters that we already knew and then they put them together and then you got to see their interactions you got to see how they did things together how they would fight together and i think that's why it was so popular and why the avengers is so popular and also 
maybe this is just me, but I grew up watching the Avengers Assemble TV show. I grew up playing like Lego Marvel and all of that. And I think it's just kind of nostalgia when seeing these characters that you've seen on television as cartoons or even as comic books and then seeing them come to life in live action. I think, I think that that's probably the reason why they're so popular. And also, they're, like, they're really family-friendly. Like, you can just watch them, like, with, like, no matter the age, you know? And it's just, it's just nice and it's accessible. So, obviously, we can't really do a Marvel episode without discussing a few things. Uh, namely, that to do with some of the actors and what happens outside of the film. So, the first and obviously biggest and... I would say probably, like, the biggest and saddest one is the death of Chadwick Boseman. Yeah. Like, Chad Chadwick was an amazing, amazing actor. Like, he kind of, kind of, he kind of just came out of nowhere, I think. Like, he always, he made several films here and there, but he wasn't really a household name. He was a household name after Civil War and after Black Panther, obviously. But mm. Black Panther is... I was very, very saddened with his passing. And it was very unusual because normally I don't really care about celebrity deaths, which is honestly really weird to say, but like I'm not connected to them. It's normal, right? Because I don't know them. But with Chadwick Boseman, I thought about his cultural impact and how he literally, just his character, just the idea of an African man who was smart, who was rich, who was powerful, who was strong. Something that established, like, it was a film about black excellence yeah. and about African identity. And it was so important to have during that time. It came out 2018, right? Yeah, 2018, February 17. Exactly. And it's also the idea of, like, representation as well. Mm. Yeah, like, say what you will about the Black Panther film, like, regardless of its quality, its existence is a testament to the importance of representation in a protagonist role. No, protagonist role. That feeling of euphoria that you get, of just, like, seeing yourself portrayed with respect and dignity, like, just right next to how cishet white men see themselves all the time. It's immense, and it is important. It's not just snowflakes whining about where, where I want representation. No, it's it's actually something that's very valuable to look at the cinema screen and see yourself. So, like, speaking of speaking as a person of colour, but also a woman of colour, a queer woman of colour, yes, I'm just, just ticking all of the minority boxes here. Um, but Careful, any more and you'll start melting. I will, I will, but... Just to have somebody who is Asian or a person of color on screen and they're depicted in a really authentic way that isn't stereotyped, that isn't, you know, fetishized. It is the most amazing feeling. Like I had this exact same feeling when I watched um, Weirdly Crazy Rich Asians. Like it's not a great movie, but I felt so much immense like pride being Asian because I used to hate being Asian. I used to look at my skin and be like, oh, I, I wish I was lighter. I wish I was whiter. I wish I had lighter hair and lighter eyes, you know? And then when you see yourself on screen, you you imagine yourself within the shoes of these characters and, and you feel so, like, warm and you feel like you, like, Hollywood finally sees you, like, the world finally sees you. 
And that is kind of how Black Panther serves, especially in a superhero context, because superheroes, they're meant to be the ideal versions of men, the ideal versions of women, right? When you have a person who is black, who is African, and who is proud, and they showcase African excellence, and you show these to little kids during a time, especially in America, where the black and white relations are so divided, I think it's so beautiful to see. And when I watched the movie, I watched it with um, I watched it with a friend of mine who they they weren't black, but they were Pacific Islander, and just seeing how people who are minorities can identify with these characters is just so beautiful to me. And that's how powerful representation is. It is, and it makes what Scarlett Johansson's nonsense is, it just makes mm-hmm. it so much worse. Exactly. I just, I used to love Scarlett Johansson until she started picking up roles that were meant to be for minorities. Yeah, I've, because um, for any of you not in the know, she said uh, something about wanting to play a tree, and that comment was, <laughs> as an indirect response to the controversy that got stirred up by her accepting the role of a man for a biopic who was historically a transgendered man. And so she says, oh yeah, I can play anything I want. She eventually did back down, but honestly, I've spoken off pot about this before, and frankly, it's fucking bullshit that we're still casting cis actors to play trans people. Jared Leto, Eddie Redmayne, Jeffrey Tambor have all done male-to-female portrayals, like, to great acclaim, Hilary Swank did Boys Don't Cry. Uh, she played a transgendered man. Well, not man, he was a boy. And she was rewarded with the Oscar for Best Actress. It's like Hollywood, do you not see what you're fucking doing? Like, on one hand, it reinforces the idea that being trans is something that you can just take off at the end of the day. And it's not. I can take off my binder. I can't take off my dysphoria. It's also, frankly, Hollywood wank. The, the excuse that as though there are no aspiring trans actors out there, you've got so many cis wannabe actors moving to California that there's movies about it. There's movies referencing that phenomenon. I see you, La La Land, but I'm not going to watch you. And you're trying to tell me that there's no trans people in the same situation who would respond to a casting call for both cis roles in their preferred or presenting gender and trans roles. And, like, you could argue, uh, but what if it's a really specific role? Motherfucker, Kevin Garnett in Uncut Gems was a really specific role, but he did a really good job because he was playing himself. (laughs) Bitch the fuck, have you ever tried to act like yourself using lines that somebody else had written for you? I I know you have one, we both have. I mean, half an hour ago, you made me pretend to like Gwyneth Pussy Candle Paltrow. (laughs) It's like, yeah. it can work. You can <sighs> find trans actors to play trans characters. These people just don't want to put the effort in. They don't want to put work into acting like they give a shit. They don't want to put work into giving a shit unless they get backlash. Because for most people, the way things have been, it's just it's the easiest way to continue to do things. And honestly, that sort of attitude, Scarlet, it's so fucking typical for someone who played a character who was originally imagined to be Japanese. Any actor can play any part, even a tree. Get munted! 
You wouldn't say that shit about a white person playing the role of a person of colour. Fucking imagine a biopic of Obama where Jared Leto plays Obama, any actor can play any part, and fucking comparing a marginalised role to being a tree, as if trans people aren't people, eat my entire ass, Scarlet. She was very recently the world's highest paid actress. She got $40 million a year, in one year, in 2018. She can retire. She's not being forced to take these roles because acting puts food on her table. Her acting has already put enough food on her table for 10 fucking lifetimes. What is this bullshit, Scarlet? You're almost as bad as Jeremy. Oh, speaking of Jeremy. Speaking of good old Jeremy Renner, we were talking about this um, before, like what, 30 minutes ago, about how his music is horseshit. It is. I actually have the lyrics to one of my favorite songs of his. Would you like me to read out a few verses? Yes, please. I would love it, Nick. I would love to be serenaded by his lovely words. This song is called Every Woman. Hey now, little sister. (laughs) I like them flowers in your hair. Hey now, little sister. Won't you let me inside your head? What's underneath your skin? Um, Your secrets pull me in. Come wash away my sins. um, Take me on your magic carpet um, ride. (laughs) Hey, mother, sister, you need, you seed the flowers to my garden. Hey, teacher, lover, you seed the flowers to my garden. Look what you've done. You're every woman. You're every woman. Oh my god. He wants to, does he want to fuck his sister? And does he want to sleep with his teacher? I do not know know. what is going on in this man's mind. It's year 10 virgin edgelord poetry. It is. And also, like, do you remember the app that he made for himself? The Jeremy Renner app? He made... He did. I I forgot Do you remember the Jeremy Renner app? Oh, my goodness. I, I remember that. I have not downloaded it. But apparently, like, you need to pay to get his attention or something like that like it's a pay it's like a oh my god like it's got like microtransactions inside the app to just like have jeremy like like your comment people are really right when they say that the worst avengers are uh, black widow and hawkeye because they're the worst that's they are the worst they are the they do have the worst actors and actresses that's yeah worst. okay mm-hmm. i'm tired of these two what, what about the best one the best avenger Chris Evans. Oh my god, Chris Evans. Yeah, um, we both saw um, Chris Evans leaked. Uh, it wasn't leaked. He accidentally leaked it himself when he went on like a Instagram live stream, right? And It was on his story, I think. It was on a story, yeah. It was like know. a story and yeah. he was searching through his photo for something. And then when he was looking at his photo albums, when he was looking at his photo albums, you saw a nice picture of his ding dong. His little Avenger. His little Avenger, yes, his little icicle, his little, uh, his little capsicle, that's the word, little capsicle. His, his little, uh... <laughs> his Swedish chef. Yeah, I didn't need to do it. It's the, um, it's Chris, it's the little Evans. Yeah, like, honestly, we saw it, I saw it accidentally on Twitter, 
and I didn't know, but let's talk about let's talk about it, Nick. Just for a bit. Your opinions. Yeah, it's um it's unfortunate that it happened and he, he got it down very quick and Honestly, I'm pretty pleased with the way that this was handled in the community on Twitter and Instagram and all that things. Like, afterwards people were actively saying, whenever they would see it reposted, hey, take this down, hey, remind him. He has massive anxiety, and his, um, people would just flood the trending tag with positive t- positivity, just overwhelming, like, the people who were reposting. And that's really good. Uh, like, I really wish that Stan culture would extend this attitude to everyone. Like, not just Chris Evans because he has massive anxiety. Like, can we not have the same attitude towards women who have their nudes leaked intentionally? Like, do you remember the fappening? Oh, I remember the fappening. That was disgusting. I remember I remember seeing some of the photos accidentally and I felt so disgusted. Like these are women and these are these were their private photos and to have their autonomy stripped away from them by hackers. It's just not right and to have their pictures all around the internet to have people kind of it's it's just so disgusting and I even knew I knew back then that that was just not on and that's this shouldn't be happening and yeah i definitely agree with you and how it stand culture should definitely extend this kind of like this kind of you know this rhetoric to to women as well mm. and not just men and not just men who look like gods yeah but speaking like speaking of like the marvel universe though one of the most interesting things that we have to mention is martin scorsese I hear he's really quite a jovial fellow. He is. He is. He he basically just says that the superhero genre is not real cinema. And look, it is an opinion, but it's... it's he's entitled to it. He's completely entitled to it. He's made amazing movies. Goodfellas, Taxi Driver, like King Comedy. Like he made... He makes all these amazing... Yeah, he makes all these amazing film bro movies. And he's a fantastic auteur. So he had every right to talk about the Marvel films. And then I remember the exact day that when Martin Scorsese said that, all of the Marvel fanboys on Twitter hopped on Martin Scorsese and they were like, how dare you? How dare you dish on these, these, these movies? They are real cinema. Do you know how important Captain America is to me? Do you know how important Iron Man is to me? they, They are characters that have shaped our lives and are so important to us. And yes, I understand representation, guys. I do get it. But it's Martin Scorsese. He has his entire to his own opinions. Like, this is what he said. He's like, look, I tried watching them, but that's not cinema. He also continues to say, honestly, the closest thing I can think of them, as well, as well made as they are, with actors doing the best they can under the circumstances, is theme parks. And that's kind of an interesting thing, is that with theme parks, you go to theme parks for a the spectacle and the adrenaline. And so I think with Marvel movies and with superhero movies in general is that they provide that sense of adrenaline. They provide that sense of spectacle, which is something that is really interesting because you go to watch and you go to watch simply to enjoy, you know, simply just to watch Captain America, you know, fuck shit up and save the world. That's why you go to watch a Captain America movie. Not really for its, you know, interesting dissections of feminism and, and class 
relations. It's not that dissection of race as like it does have those kind of subtle subtext but not really in the forefront of its you know plot or diegesis or its narrative you know yeah that's that's why i said earlier when you asked oh yeah how do you feel during these movies um i i wasn't i was joking about the horny i wasn't joking about the bored these movies they i actually get really bored after like the first probably like five minutes into the big final fight i hate it i i just don't care mm, there's, mm. for me there's like no stakes and it's like yeah i can really see where he's coming from that if you're like an an artist like scorsese yeah you look at that and it's like this feels like a child has done a drawing in crayons and we are putting it up on the wall like he's right it's not cinema and Black Panther should not have been nominated for an Oscar, but then again, the Oscars are fucking jokes. Mm-hmm. Also, I, as much as I do agree with Martin Scorsese when he says that it's not cinema, I do also agree the... I also do find the Marvel fanboys, like, perspective interesting because I do agree with that as well. Like, some of these characters, some of these films are very important to these people. They're very sentimental in that way because it's characters that they've grown up with. It's nostalgia. But it's also like the amount of just time that is put in the universe. But it's just kind of that idea of like them spending all of this time, all of this time watching all of these movies and following every single lore, every single character arc, and then having like having the end of Infinity War and Endgame being kind of like that tie-in of everything. It's that kind of like I'd say it's that um, like it's it's like it's like that bow on top of that present, you know what I mean? Mm. So it's just, yeah. And so when you spend all this time of your life, like 10 years of your life watching all these films for it to have that climactic ending, that's why it's so important to them. And that's why it's so amazing to see people all come together for one movie. And Endgame and Infinity War and the Avengers in in general is basically... A cultural reset. I feel like the thing that needs to be introduced into more more vocabularies is the distinction between this thing is good and I like this thing. Mm-hmm. So those Marvel fanboys, they they do have a point. It does have a genuine emotion. You can have a, that genuine emotional attachment to a property. It doesn't make it good though. And film, obviously, has a lot of objective variables as well as a lot of subjective variables. You can have an objectively bad film. Not that these ones are. They're just mostly mediocre. On a technical level, not on an emotional level. I can still love the shit out of Ragnarok. I do love the shit out of Ragnarok. Mm-hmm. But I'm going to acknowledge... I love Ragnarok. Not not the best. It's not the best film, you know? It is. Like, some, some of these films aren't good films. They're just okay films. They're, like, okay films to, like, you watch while you're doing something else, you know? Mm. Like, they're good films to watch in cinema with your mates, but they're not good films to watch at home on your laptop or on your TV. Yeah, they're good films know? to put on the background at, like, a party or something for those, like, yeah. people who just kind of sit down and watch the movie. <laughs> I think it's really interesting to see how 
important Marvel is to us. I think when we're growing up and even now and looking back at it from like retrospectively as well. We, we grew up throughout that time. So yeah, there's a lot of nostalgia for these films. There's so much nostalgia. Like some films for me, some films are much more important to me than others. Like the most important film for me is Parasite. Captain America Winter Soldier. Oh, no. <laughs> I mean, in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, the oh, Winter okay. Soldier is like the iconic film. The amount of times I've seen that movie is crazy. Anyway, but yeah, like I, I genuinely think that it's really, it's really wonderful to have that kind of wrap up with Endgame and Infinity War, no matter how depressing it is. And after, after I finished watching Infinity War and Endgame, I went straight to fanfiction.net, went straight to Archive of Our Own, <laughs> I went straight to Wattpad to find the, like those Avengers fanfictions where they're all living in a tower where Civil War doesn't happen, where Infinity War and Endgame doesn't happen, and they just live in the tower and they just have fun, and they just have movie nights and pizza nights and they have parties, and like... And for some reason, Thor always likes Pop-Tarts. Thor loves Pop-Tarts for some reason. And, like, maybe Sam Wilson has a baking thing. Like, he loves to bake for people, you know? Like, you know, Captain America and Bucky Barnes is there for some reason. I don't know why, but I appreciate him for being there. You know, Loki sometimes is there. Like, why <laughs> is Loki there? I don't understand. But he's there anyways to have fun, right? And, you know, like, Spider-Man's there, like, Peter Parker's there. Why is he there? No idea. But it's interesting to, like, just go back to see how the fandom is going. Yeah. And and one last thing that the Avengers did is, oh, my God, those credit scenes. The idea of staying to the end of the credits for addition. I feel so bad for the ushers in the cinemas. <laughs> I had times where they were just, like, staring at me and the two other nerds. Oh. Yes. Just waiting for it to end. I, they they hated that so much. You could see the pain on their eyes. Yeah, like, it's interesting how, like, Marvel has really created and really forced you to stay until the credits to watch, like, extra additional content. And that's just become a Marvel thing. Uh, now, we've talked a lot about mediocre-ish films today. But mm-hmm. you want... You know what, Mon? I feel like talking about a certain movie that started off as a literal joke about B-movies. We're talking B-movie. I love B-movie. I I used to love this movie as a kid. I used to watch it almost every single day, apart from like Shrek 2 or just Shrek. And I I, I stand B-movie. I can quote that movie so much. It's it's iconic. It's revolutionary. And we're going to be talking about it next week. Yes. And speaking of staying f- to the end for additional content, you can get just that at Facebook at As a Film Student Podcast, Instagram As Film Student Pod, or you can watch me pretend to be someone else on Twitter at As Film Student. And you can get our film reviews and see what we really thought on Letterboxd at As Film Student. All the links will be in the description, and you can hear us just about everywhere. You can hear better podcasts. But for now, I am and always have been Nick. And I've been Mon. See ya, guys.